dad was a very innocent, humble guy, very cheeky as well. Mm -hmm. But he was innocent, humble, so he could, he could get away with it. Whereas Hemsworth was just cocky and arrogant, mm. and that just wasn't my father's character at all. That, that's why I think I think unless he was directed deliberately directed to play it that way, he did an extremely poor job. Is that what you remember as a child? What do you remember about your father? Is it that cheeky side of him? Ladies and gents, welcome back to Pit Stop. It's a blastingly hot summer's day here in London, and uh, today we've got another bonus episode, haven't we? Because we have another guest. Yeah, very special guest of us today, probably on one of the hottest days of the year. Can feel the sweat dripping down my yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But ladies and gentlemen, Freddie Hunt. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Let's go. Thank you for having me, guys. Freddie, how are we doing, man? Yeah, very well, thanks, very well. Yeah, I'm hot, as you say, but yeah, I'm not <laughs> Got here on time, I think. Yeah, you travelled down quite a way today. You come from Scotland today? Not today, no. I, do, I, I live in Scotland, but I've, I've been staying um, staying with my girlfriend in Tunbridge. So. Oh, great. So not, not too far, luckily. And you live on a farm, right? I do, yeah. Not, it's not a commercial farm. Um, so I bought the place, when was it? Um, sort of winter 2020, early, I think, completed January 21. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a small holding. It's an old... Uh, old sort of area, well, it was pretty derelict farmhouse, hadn't been lived in for 10 years. Um, I looked at it and it's funny, I actually, I'd actually seen the place six months before when I was walking up on the hill um, and seen this, this, this house down in, down in the glen on its own. I thought, God, the lucky bastard lives there. I'll give my, <laughs> I'll give my left arm for that. Yeah. And I've got a, a little bit of land where I can uh, rear, rear my own food. So I've got a, um, I've got, 17 pigs now. We've got three adults um, for breeding. And, Is it just uh, you there looking after them? Yeah, I mean, I've got someone. Uh, a lady keeps her horses on 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 the farm. She she looks after my animals when I'm when I'm when I'm away. Yeah, and, I was going to uh, say who's there with them now. Yeah, no, no, they, they are they are being looked after. Um, actually, some of the pigs need, need moving around because of the heat. One of them, one of the sows, who I had to separate from the youngsters. Um, she was uh, lying in a water bowl, so not getting any clean water. Um, so, I've had, so I had to call someone else, because she's, she's in her probably 50s, maybe 60s, I'm not sure. But someone else is a bit more able-bodied to come this evening and, yeah. and move some pigs around. Because, yeah, um, yeah uh, sows with youngsters can be a little bit ferocious. It's a fun life working on a farm. Hard, hard life as well. The work actually is hard to look kind of It maintain. is, yeah. And this is only, like I said, it's not a commercial farm. All I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got the pigs, I've got a few sheep. Um, which are very low maintenance, and uh, and, and chickens, and mm. um, but they still need watering and feeding every day. And then you know, my main issue at the moment is water. Mm. Um, you know, we've got a drought at the moment up there. Right. Um, my water supply is about to run dry. There is a burn below, about it's about 400 meters from the from the tank on the hill mm. where I draw my water from. So I've got a pump. I've got a pump that arrived just before I left last week. I've got to pump water from the main bone below, but I've also then got to have that water analysed um, because I don't know how clean it is. Yeah. So it's probably got a lot of farmers' nitrates in it because it's in the main, um, yeah, it's in the bottom of the glen, where so where there's farmers' fields either side. Whereas my water is up here above it, all the farmers' fields. Right, right, right. So clean as a whistle. Yeah. But this water, I need to get that analysed and maybe install filters and all that shit. So. Oh, more fun. What yeah. makes you want to live in that in that style? Is there like a reason that you love doing that? Like having your own water, having your own food? Absolutely, for my health. 
Yeah. Um, and it's it's very fulfilling, you know, when you have when you eat a meal which is all grown by yourself. I can imagine that must be amazing. You know, there's no pesticides on it. So I mean, you know, <clears throat> growing all my own food, I know exactly what's gone into it. Um, the pig feed isn't organic, unfortunately, but it's at least they are, you know, they're completely free range. They do eat a lot of, you know, they have free range of the field, so they're they're rooting, getting a lot of their own natural food from there. No antibiotics, no hormones, no steroids, no nothing. I've never actually injected them once. I've given them a worm once, and that was it. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go way back to the start of your kind of life, really. You grew up in, was it West Sussex? Yes, yeah. Born, well, I started, born in, started in London, no, in Wimbledon with my father. Right. Um, and then parents got divorced when I was two or three, I think. Stayed in Wimbledon for probably a year, maybe, with my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, just around the corner from Dad, so we were still very close. And then we moved out to the countryside. Unfortunately, Dad was reluctant to move, um, so he stayed in London. We went up every weekend. Um, and uh, then when I was five, he died. Um, so, yeah, then raised, raised, in, raised in Sussex from then on, really. And um, because Dad died when I was so young, Mum knew nothing about motorsport, wasn't interested. You know, they met after he, re- he retired. Um, she was from an equine background. Her mother was a trainer, her father... Both her mother and father were racehorse trainers. Right. Um, so my mum was horse horse nuts. So I mm-hmm. naturally grew up on the back of a horse. And when I was, I think I was about 13, 14, I said, Mum, I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting a bit bored of this, you know, venting and jumping and cross country and stuff. And uh, she said, Well, why don't you try polo? I don't think she really thought about the costs involved with it when she <laughs> no, suggested yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I did, and I loved it. It's, it's a full contact sport. Yeah. It's probably one of the most difficult, difficult sports. Well, I don't know world. anything about the rules of polo or anything. Can you give it like a brief explanation of how it works? Yeah, four man aside, there's one main rule that you need to abide by is the line of the ball to prevent collisions. So when the ball is struck, you can't cross the line. So to get to the ball, so if this, and you can only hit, hit the ball with your right hand side, with your right, regardless of your left hand or not. So oh. you hit it off this side of the horse or you can go near side of the horse. Now, mm-hmm. if I hit it off the, from the off side on the line, if my opponent wants to get to it, he can either come on the line, next to the line, hit it from his near side. Uh-huh. He could hook my stick as I'm swinging for the ball or he can ride me off. So we are knee pads. As long as you're no more than 45 degrees and uh, knee to knee or ideally one knee just in front of their knee and then you've got the edge, you push, push them off the line and then you've got the line and you take it. Right. Um, you're going flat out with chaos all around you. It's, 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 <laughs> it's a hell of a sport. Um, but anyways, so I, I left school when I was 16 because at the age of 14 I realised... Um, I wasn't really learning much, and mm. it's a bit of a waste of money. So the you know the little money that my father's life insurance covered for our uh, private education was running out fast. Um, had a couple of years left, and we thought, well, it might be a better idea to abandon school uh, at the age of sixteen and buy horses instead and concentrate on polo because that's what I'm now really enjoying. So at the age of sixteen, we bought some horses and. Um, and, and I turned professional. Oh, wow, you went, went pro? Yeah, yeah, I, play, I played professionally for two years, and then my, my, the horses that we bought weren't exactly youngsters, because mm. um, they're, you know, minimum 20 grand a piece. Yeah. Um, minimum. So all my horses were like three or four grand, sort of old ones, and two years later, now they're getting a bit too old, mm. and we don't have any money to replace them, you know, mm. so I need, you need at least four. So you have to, like, provide your own At least four, ideally five or six for that level I was playing at. So okay. You need to bring your own horses yeah. and everything, yeah. 
Um, so just the cost of the upkeep. Luckily, I had a good deal with a local farmer. Um, to keep it. So I had a very cheap upkeep compared. In compared, I was probably paying twenty percent of what other polo players, you know, other yards are paying. So yeah. I was lucky there. Um, but yeah, I couldn't couldn't afford to replace them. And it was it was on a Friday. It was the Friday of the Festival of Speed. I'd never been before. Actually, I'd been once when I was a kid. Goodwood. Goodwood Festival. Yeah, we were there last year. And a uh, hard conversation with mum uh, on the Friday. We said, we're going to have to sell the horses, or what's left of them, while they're still worth something. Um, put that money aside. Try and get a job playing for another team, if we can. Um, and continue from there. I don't really have any other options. Uh, and that afternoon, I, that evening, that same day, I went into town to rent a movie. Um, before the days of Netflix. <laughs> yeah, blockbuster. Yeah, blockbuster. Yeah, so this is 2006. Bumped into a friend who's Jody Kidd's boyfriend at the time. He's a oh, polo okay. player, ex-racing ex driver turned polo player. Mm -hmm. Argentine fella. And he, he said, Fred, what are you doing tomorrow? Do you want to come to the Goodwood Festival of Speed? I said, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. I'd love to. And Jody was driving a Maserati GT4 and mm -hmm. she said, Lovely. Fred, why don't you jump in and have a drive? Now, I'd only had my driving license for a few weeks. I certainly didn't have a racing license. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> Luckily, um, that's daunting. Yeah, yeah that's quite a big so step. I, that's I, a big I, jump, I was yeah. pretending as to be Jodie because she's she, she's a tall girl, and so her overalls yeah. and helmet fit me. So I put right, wore right. her stuff. It was all really hush hush. If Goodwood knew about it at the time, I'm sure they know about it now. Because this story's been told many times. So, yeah, oh, great. Um, but yeah. Um, just jumped in this in this Maserati, went up the hill. I was pretty nervous, you know. I, I mean, my my road car, which I've been driving for a few weeks, was a uh, a Volkswagen Passat hand-me-down from Mum. You know, it was a two-liter <laughs> diesel banger with about five horsepower. Yeah. Um, jump into this thing, which was probably three fifty, four hundred or something. Yeah. Um, the Maserati guy next to me probably shitting his pants. <laughs> if this goes wrong, I'm, I'm getting it in the neck. <laughs> um, but no, I made it up the hill and thought, wow, this is great. And Andrea, the, the um, Jody's boyfriend said, Fred, look, you're not a bad polo player, um, but you've got no money and no horses and no farm to breed horses, so you're never going to get anywhere. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Unless you, you know, somehow win the lottery or something. So I suggest if you like racing, if you're good at it, um, you go for that. Because with your name, you can hopefully make, make a career out of it. Unbeknown to me, Again, with costs involved. <laughs> yeah, it must be slightly I thought, more. I, I thought, great, I'll be a racing driver and I'll get paid. Brilliant. Nope. <laughs> no, you've got to go and find. I think I was 105 grand was the budget for my first season. And didn't find, I think only 10 or 20% of that or less was came from commercial sponsors. The rest was, and they were still friends. What racing division was that? That was the British Formula 4 Championship. Right. So that was 2007 I started. Okay. That was my first season. And how old were you here? 19, yeah. Okay. Well, I think I was eight, 18 at the beginning of the season. I, my birthday's in June, so... So really, your first kind of experience in a racing car, you were 19 years old. It's quite, I guess, late for a, a racing driver. Very late, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, then it all went pear-shaped, because actually I, I turned out to be quite quite a lot faster than I realised, well, than faster than I should have been for my level of experience. That doesn't um, surprise me that you were quick. <laughs> well, I didn't really know how to drive. In terms of <laughs> considering, do you know what I mean? Considering yeah, I know. The heritage. You know, no one had told me. Yeah, you know, I know I had been taught. You know what makes a car, a racing car, go fast in terms of balance and stuff. I did my yeah. ARDS license, and then at, at Silverstone, you learned a few very basics there. Mm. And then I did some testing in in Sepang. Luckily, a friend of my uncle's. So in December two thousand six, I went off did a few days testing in Sepang. He invited me. 
Um, that was really lucky because I needed that. And then jumped into Formula 4 in the beginning in the, in the winter of 2007. And I remember testing at Snetterton and I was, there were about 10, 12 other drivers that were all going to the championship that year and I think I was second fastest. None of the wow. top guys were there. Mm. Um, but these were all, and so they were midfield guys and I was, I was, I was consistently much faster than them. Right. It's the first time ever in a Formula Ford car. Wow. And it was wet. Oh, wow. And then it started to dry and I thought, well, Freddie's doing really well. Um, so we'll put him on slicks on a drying track. Of course, I crashed the car. Um, and my uncle went ballistic. So my un uncle Dave, he was now sort of mentoring me and helping to manage me. Mm -hmm. This is Dad's little brother who raced as well. Great. Um, when the bill came through for the crash, he said, not, not a chance. You, know, you put a brand new driver on slicks in a, on a semi-wet track. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. And we end up meeting halfway. Um, Wait, so the team wanted you to pay for a car? Yeah, yeah. If you crash the car, you've got to pay. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Even though it was oh, their, yeah, it was their strategy to put, to put on the slicks. Yeah, a brand new driver who's never driven the circuit, never driven a Formula Ford, never driven in the wet. So, yeah, that was... Um, the pressure of the first race. Well, the, I knew that I was quick because everyone was quite impressed. Mm. Um, and, in, and in private testing like that, when there was not, a, not, not at a race weekend, there was no pressure and I was really enjoying it. Mm. And I was, I, I was driving so instinctively... I didn't have time to put pressure on myself. I mean, it didn't come into my mind. But then I remember getting to the first race meeting at Donington and then, wow, the pressure came on because I knew everyone thought I was quick. And then, therefore, not only do I have the expectations being my father's son, lots of cameras watching me, which previously I'd never had before being a country boy, yeah. um, you know, playing polo. I think I'd done one interview before with a local newspaper and that was it. And, yeah. and then to suddenly having all these cameras pointing at me and, and in journalists coming up to me and people asking for autographs and all of this, I realised that this is actually quite a big deal, that James Hunt's son is starting racing. I didn't realise, you know, I knew Dad was famous, I knew he was a world champion, but I didn't realise quite the, the gravity of it, if you know what I mean, particularly with the British public. Yes. Um, so I completely froze up at Donington, my first race. Um, it was actually, I nearly made a really, nearly made a hell of a start. I qualified like 18th, which was, you know, two seconds off my own pace. We tested there a few weeks before, and I was two seconds slower mm. at the race meeting. And had I been two seconds quicker, that would have put me, you know, P6 or something, or P5 right. um, in qualifying. Um, anyway, I qualified like 18th or 19th. Um, I also seem to have a natural gift with clutch control. I launched off the line, um, first race, before the braking zone from P18, I was now about P10. Wow. I literally just got it perfectly and flew off the line. Um, uh, well, everyone's either bogging down or spinning up, you know, too much, too little. And I just nailed it just right. It makes a big difference if you get it just right. And then break, come to the braking zone, red gate. Everyone goes to the inside. Um, you're covering the inside. So I just break. They have to start braking earlier. Mm. So I go to the outside break normally, around the outside, I'm now up to about P5, P6, but then just put one wheel on the grass and spin into the pack and take out five cars. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like you every time you race. me. <laughs> and Motorsport News, thanks very much, guys. Front page, look, it's Hunt the Shunt Jr. standing oh, next to his wrecked no. car. Luckily, it wasn't huge damage. It wasn't like a massive pileup. It was just, you know, a few mm. corners here and there. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Not, not ideal. Not ideal. And then the second race, I was so... Um, so wound up by this stage, yeah. I, to the point I didn't even see the fucking checkered flag. I, I did an extra three laps. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was waving me in. I was so, you know, so I was in a in. complete mess you know, mentally. Yeah. And unfortunately, it didn't really get much better from there on. I would put so much pressure on myself 
that I had to deliver. I had to. That, and when you're when you're not 100 percent mm. in the car, and I was only on about 40 percent, I'd say, or less than that. You can't feel the car beneath you. You can't. Mm. You literally can't drive. And that's what happened. Um, you talking about that checkered flag there it, and being locked in and not and not and carrying for the three laps. It just reminds me of when your dad wasn't driving through the puddles to cool down his tires. That's good. That's good information. Uh, thank you so much. Well it just I literally could see it. It was like the same thing in the head. Yeah, he cocked that race up completely. <laughs> He's bloody lucky. He got he, he managed managed to pit and and get out and get third because yeah. uh, Andretti won the race on the same set of tires, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's um, funny. That's so funny. He's never actually said that. Not many people have commented, but had he called his called his tires, I yeah. think they would have lasted and he would have won the race. Right. But it would have been less dramatic. So maybe yeah, yeah. he deliberately went for it. Who knows? <laughs> I know <laughs> we can like laugh about the pressure now and look back at these stories and, and they're funny. But at the time for you, that must have been like really, really hard and stressful. It was demoralising. Was the word. Um, so I struggled that whole season, and we did a lot of testing which was 90% of it was wet, and then we didn't, didn't do one wet race. Mm-hmm. Nick Tandy was my teammate, um, who's now a works Porsche driver. Um, he's won Le Mans for Porsche. He's a top, top driver. Wow. Um, and in, the, in practice, when it was just he and I testing, in the dry, I was always within, normally within half a second or so, sometimes only a couple of tenths. In the wet, we were pretty close. Mm. Um, sometimes I was a little bit quicker, even though you might not admit that I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you'd get to the race meeting, and it'd all go pear shaped again because my head was wasn't 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 right, mm. and I didn't know what to do about it. I saw um, sports psychologists, mm. um, and long story short, what I've learned now is I, I need to get in the, into the mind frame of that I don't give a shit. And I'm not driving against top professionals. I'm driving against my mates. Mm. And this guy's a rookie. Um, and, yeah, I just don't care. But, I, of course, I do care. But I need to pretend, get, yeah. get myself to the point of not caring. I can imagine it was fun also... and relaxing. That's so relatable. Dad, Dad was um, uh, Mika Hakkinen's mentor. When Mika came into Formula One, he was suffering from a, the same or similar problem. I interviewed Mika a, few, a couple of years ago, mm. just before COVID, a few years ago now. And... Um, Basically, the, the the advice Dad gave to Mika, because he wasn't performing when he first got in the Formula One car, um, he says, you're trying too hard, you're putting too much pressure on yourself, and you're not having fun. Go out, relax, and have fun. And he did, and he managed to change his mindset and became world champion. Mm. That's one of the most relatable things I think I've ever heard, because the whole reason that we do Pit Stop here... We like to give like a million different reasons as to why we do it in our flat, but the main reason is because we're comfortable. So we're comfortable. Like we've done interviews with drivers and stuff where it hasn't been in our flat. It's been away, and it's just nerve wracking to to conduct a podcast or an interview with a, with a racing driver when you're not at home. So being in our flat, it makes us feel like we don't give a shit, even though we do. Yes, yeah, it that, that calms you down. The nerves, mm. right? Figure yeah. out what works for you. But I must say, I'm in the. the the atmosphere is very relaxed, and it's helping me relax as well. So yeah, that's, 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 oh, that's good. good. So. You were 18 and you step into the car for the first time, 18, 19. Yeah. And you say before that you didn't really know much about F1 or racing at all, really. Zero. I didn't even know there was a difference between a road tyre and a racing tyre. That's how, how uh, ignorant, ignorant I was. But, but I think that's, that's also like something that you can look at and be like, well, I shouldn't be so hard on myself because I, have, I wasn't grown up. Yeah, I wasn't grown up for them 18 years even knowing anything no about one ever told, it. No one ever told me this. And also, no one ever told me, Fred, you're doing actually a lot better than expected, so you just back yeah. off a little bit and you'll be fine. No mm. one told me that either. You they only told me when I was doing something wrong. You know, we look on the data. Oh, you're, you're, it's the you're, only you're, time they want to say something, isn't it? Exactly. They never say it when you're Don't good. say, you know, I, I need to know when I'm doing it right. 
and no one have told me that either. So, yeah, I think I've... I mean, I can't knock JTR, Joe Tandy Racing. Um, so Nick's brother, Nick Tandy, ran the team. Um, he died a few years later from a car accident, which was really sad, uh, on the road. Um, I can't knock them. They were great. Nick spoke my language in terms of teaching me how to drive quickly. I mean, he, he wouldn't go into bog down into the detail of what the bloody suspension's doing during a corner. Um, he would just say, you know, go in harder, stop being a pussy, you know, or whatever. <laughs> or whatever it needed to be said, you know. Or you're, 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 being, you're being too aggressive here on the brakes, break a fraction early, and then the car will settle more for going into the corner, things like that. He put it in very yeah, yeah. simple layman's terms. And I learned a hell of a lot, but it's just a shame I couldn't put it into practice in the race. Um, but when I do drive instinctively, when there is no pressure, um, so in the next year, 2008, I had no sponsors. Um, and on a Friday evening, I was, rang up, I was called up to Fred, you, there's, a, there's a seat available at Mallory Park in a Ginetta G20. It was, it was a little, um, it was the junior of Ginetta's, but a little, uh, sort of, not touring car, effectively like a mini GT car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had I've tested at Mallory before, so I knew the track, luckily. Um, anyway, because of the practice on Friday, I had no practice, jumped into the car and pissing wet, um, like really, really wet, rivers across the track, and then they only got about two flying laps in because of the red flags. Um, but that was good enough for pole by over a second. Oh, wow. Um, and I thought, great. And then the uh, first race, I was sitting in pole position, and the track was now dry. So I'm thinking, shit, I haven't driven in the drive before. So again, I'm forced to be in driving instinctively because I don't know. Right. Just got and everyone else around you, everyone else in that grid, they, yeah. they know the track really well. They know how to drive in that really well. Also, which did help, I assume these guys were all clubbies that didn't really, you know, not the best drivers. So the pressure wasn't on there. Um, turns out I was wrong. Some of them were actually quite good, quite <laughs> decent drivers. Yeah. I was told later, told afterwards. <laughs> um, anyway, I was leading the first race by a fairly comfortable margin when my throttle cable snapped, I had to park it. Uh -huh. So I started from the back of the grid on the second race. Now I had a bit more confidence in the, you know, what, how the car is, feels in the dry, I know where I can brake and you know, how much en entry speed I can take. Yeah. And, uh, and I took the lead on the last lap, which I didn't know. Was the... I don't know what the first corner is, it was a lovely long right-hander, and I was about three or four car lengths back. Um, had I known it was the last lap, I probably wouldn't have gone for the move, because I was just happy to take second place for the podium. But I thought, right, I reckon I can get him here. <laughs> so, <laughs> lunge in, lunge, got completely sideways, missed him by an inch, and I drifted around the first half of the corner, but then managed to level the car up and get back on the power for the, coming out of the corner down the straight. And that put me in the lead, and yeah. it came round. The checker flag came down. I won. Unbelievable! So, uh, Unbelievable! That's so fucking cool. Over the next few months, I met a German. I was introduced to a German manager who wanted to um, invest in me, um, and we did the last race of the 2008 um, ADC Formula Masters in Germany at Hockenheim. Unfortunately, the mind monkeys, what I call them, that's what I refer to them as, my, my, my nerves, my pressures, mind monkeys, little mm. fuckers up here, <laughs> um, were back because, yeah, I was, again, I was fairly quick in the testing. Um, we did a little bit of testing and then um, I think, I, I finished eighth, I think, in both of those races. So it wasn't too bad. Yeah. It's still not, not, not as quick as I was. We did a decent winter testing program for 2009 but again the mind monkeys were fully fully there if not getting worse and worse because it was like a snowball effect I was getting more and more frustrated more and more upset with myself because I, I couldn't seem to get on top of this mental problem what was the and main mind monkey that you would have would it be I want to get there I'm not where I want to be or would it would it be that you know because you, of your dad's accomplishments and you're always thinking about that well I don't think any of it was actual 
consciousness. I mean, I, I wasn't consciously thinking about these things. I was just trying so hard in the races and in qualifying. And when you try too hard, you, you tense up and you can't feel the car beneath you. Yeah. Um, and you, you can't drive. My girlfriend, she's, she's, a, she's an amateur driver, and she, I think she's suffering from the same things. In, in testing, she's very quick, and she drove for the first time at Brands Grand Prix track, which she'd never driven before, mm. um, and she didn't have any practice, she went straight into qualifying, and she did really well because she had to drive instinctively. Could it, it change the second you sit in the car, the mood? Like, could you go, in, I don't know, so like if, in a race weekend when there's all them pressures, can you feel fine and then sit in the car? And then out of nowhere, it's like, oh my God. Uh, it can certainly change from race to race. So last year, when we started the Michelin Le Mans Cup, first race, um, so by this time, so this is jumping on a few years. Yeah, so I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 actually, I'll come to that in a second. I'll tell you a bit more. So by mid-2009, after my manager had spent a lot of money on testing, a lot of money on crash damage, um, and a lot of money on mental and physical analysis um, to try and figure out why the hell I'm crashing. So, you know, why am I spinning and crashing and underperforming, you know, miles off my own pace, my own testing pace. Um, and we didn't get anywhere, so I, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. It was too upsetting, too demoralizing. So I knocked it on the head and I, I stopped playing, but uh, stopped racing altogether. Um, what did I do after that? Then I went back to Argentina because I spent a lot of time there from, from the polo days. Um, okay. Then came back, surrounded the money and couldn't, couldn't find a job and <laughs> uh, did a, ran a pest control business for a couple of years. Yeah, um, see, this which is was very a, random. And this was very, like very, very in West Sussex. Yeah, but growing up, growing up in the countryside on farms, you know, you, you learn how to yeah, catch, yeah. catch rats and shoot, shoot, shoot squirrels quite easily. So yeah. pest control was a piece of piss to me. Mm. Um, I worked for another, one bloke just for a couple of weeks, see what it's like, and I thought, I could do this job standing on my head, and you're writing invoices for, I'll say, only half what rentical charge, but still very lucrative. (laughs) Don't ever hire rentical, whatever you do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then Axel, my previous um, German manager, he invited me for a couple of one-off drives in a Chevrolet Cruze, and now I was no longer considering myself professional. The pressure was off, and we were on the podium. I thought, this is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he kind of tried to persuade me to come back and do a bit more, but I was like, I've been there, done that. You know, I've, I'm busy. I've got a good business now. I'm making money. Um, I, I'm not sure I want to go back to that you know, heartache. Mm. And, yeah. um, so I didn't, and then sold the business, moved back to Argentina, um, stayed there for, yeah, that brought me up to 2012. And then 2013, Rush came out. And it was just before Rush. Yes. Before that, so that I think that was sort of awesome time. But in the, in earlier on, I was invited to a race in Buenos Aires, um, and the kind of the bug bit again. Really, I decided I wanted to race again. I thought I'd, and now with my newfound maturity, I also spent a lot of time out in the mountains on my own, um, which gave me a lot of time to sort of self-reflect and. Then, just sort of, I don't really know exactly what happened in my mind, but that kind of I, environment can clear your head a little bit. And, yeah, yeah, and I, I just felt that maybe I can do it now. Mm. Maybe I'm matured enough to do it. So I looked for sponsors in Argentina um, with no luck. Um, well, I did find one, but there's only 20% of the budget required. And then I realized, then Rush came out, and I thought, I'm probably going to have to move back to the UK, or Europe at least. Mm. Um, so, I, so I did, that was, uh, must have been February 2014, I moved back, January mm. Whilst you talk about Rush, you went to the premiere of it, didn't you? Yes, yeah. What was that like for you? Because you must have, obviously the first time you've seen it, seen the movie put together, 
But there must have been a load of people there as well that knew your dad really well. Yeah, um, it was quite hazy memory, to be honest. I mean, because it's, I do remember it a bit, um, but it's a lot of adrenaline and then afterwards a lot of alcohol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably most races are the same, to be honest. Um, <laughs> no, off, the, off, off the drink now, pretty much. You can't, I can't, can't drink. The, the level of racing I'm doing now. You know, and We're I, definitely going to that. That's another thing I've learned as well. Is that's I probably what will calm your nerves before I didn't realise how, how long alcohol stays in your system mentally. You, know, yeah, if you, you get a hangover the next day. But it can, well, certainly for me, maybe I've got a slight mental allergy to it. It can knock my confidence and my self-esteem for a week or two. For you. What if I get pissed one night? Really? Yeah, it can really knock my self-esteem for a week or so. Mm. Um, wow. So that's why I pretty much, pretty much keep off the alcohol now. Mm. It does make um, you anxious. Of that. I get anxious after makes, a hangover. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I wake up the next day and worry about everything I've said, everything I've yeah, done. Question yeah, question your own it's existence. A <laughs> 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 On a big, after a big night, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant, that's brilliant. <laughs> Um, I'm surprised they. Um, I'm surprised, but maybe because you're quite young at the time. But they didn't ask. You weren't asked for any information for the making of the Rush movie. I mean, I suppose they probably wouldn't have anyway. Because no, well, Tom and I, my brother and I, weren't alive at the time, so mm. we couldn't. There's nothing we could offer. They did use my uncles and some of them, probably quite a lot of the McLaren personnel who are still alive. Yeah. Um, but my brother and I. But what did upset me was. Chris Hemsworth's performance. Now, I don't know if I should be upset with Chris or Ron Howard, the director, because basically he played Dad like a twat. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if that's due to his poor acting or he was d- directed to play that way. Right. Um, but Nicky La- uh, Daniel Brawl, who played Nicky Loud, an absolute masterpiece, mm-hmm. he actually asked Nicky if he could spend some time with him so he could learn his mannerisms and really yeah. get to know him. So, you know, that, and that's, that's real good professional research. Yes. With real professional work, that is. And he spent two weeks living with him. Nicky said yes. And, and as, as you saw, you know, he, he absolutely nailed it. Yeah. What did Hemsworth do in contrast? Fuck all. Uh, he didn't contact the family once. But I don't know if he was... Well, that's kind of what I meant when I, when I asked. Like, they didn't reach out to the family to get any kind of... No. Anything like that? No. no. Um, not, in ter- not in terms for, from, from acting. Um, and I know Alistair Corbett was a team manager. Uh, McLaren team manager at the time he was involved a lot on set and he would be saying no it wasn't like this it wasn't like this and apparently several times they had to put him aside this is a movie not a documentary mm. um, so they did change things and when I asked Ron Howard why did you change so many things the director and he said oh the truth was too awesome man no one would believe it I nearly slapped him because uh, mm. you know you missed out on a golden opportunity the movie was great and it's you know people liked it but it could have been if they just stuck to the truth it would have been so much better what kind of can you give an example? They were the main thing. So, so Dad and Nicky Lauder, they show in the movie meeting and immediately becoming sort of rival enemies. Hmm. That's bullshit. They were living together. They were mates at the time. Right. Yeah. They and were friends throughout the whole thing. In a documentary thing. that was, Yeah. They, there was one moment during the 76th season where there was quite a bit of friction between them. So if they wanted, they could have expanded and elaborated on that, fluffed hmm. that out a bit more. And I think that would have been better if they're friends all the way up to Formula One all through Formula 3 and Formula 2 mm. and Formula 1 and, and Dad was like two years behind Nicky getting into Formula 1 then he gets into Formula 1 he's in the Hesketh and he's th- threatening the Ferrari mm. um, and then he gets into the McLaren and he, and he out qualifies the Ferrari in the first race mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then has a mechanical failure Nicky pulls away in the, in the points yeah. I think I need, you'd need to fact check this but I think it's the, still the greatest comeback in points in the history of the sport really I think so but I'm not 100% on that I need to, I need to look into that but I believe it is he was miles ahead um, and uh, and then you know McLaren got their act together in terms of reliability. The car got a little bit quicker throughout the second half of the season. And Nicky said on camera, which I have, um, 
he said even with or without my crash I couldn't couldn't have beaten him he was just too damn quick even in that shitty McLaren wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was really nice but yeah the moment when they were really upset with each other it was when the media misquoted them mm. and and there was about three or four days where they were really upset and uh, with one another but once they got each other on the phone and yeah. then they realised it was all a load of crap they due to the media misquoting, as they nearly yeah. always do. Yeah, that's the media. Um, yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they the media just, does that a lot. Never seem to be able to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so they could have elaborated on that more. The other bit I really didn't like was Dad premeditating aggression, um, punching the journalist. Dad did punch some people in his career, and that was all on camera, but it was never premeditated. Right. Um, you know, him deliberately going after that guy and knocking his teeth out was horrible, and that was didn't like that. And just generally the, the attitude of my father... You know, Dad was a very innocent, humble guy, very cheeky as well. Mm -hmm. But he was innocent, humble, so he could, he could get away with it. Whereas Hemsworth was just cocky and arrogant, mm. and that just wasn't my father's character at all. That, that's why I think I think unless he was directed deliberately directed <coughs> to play it that way, he did an extremely poor job. Is that what you remember as a child? When you when you think I know it was a long time ago, and you you were very young, so it's probably a bit hazy now, but. What do you remember about your father? Is it that cheeky side of him? Because we only see one. Yeah, no. To be honest, side, you know. the memories have faded so much of Dad. Um, it's just I was so young as well. I was only five. Mm. I had a fuck knows what the problem was, but basically for the first three years of my life I was 80 or 90% deaf and that affected my balance as well. I was crashing really? into things. I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was, a, I was a wreck. Um, so I had a bit of a slow start to life. So um, uh, then I had an operation. When I got home from the operation, first thing I said, well, what's that noise? And it was the bird singing I'd not heard before. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so yeah, all the memories I have of Dad really are just home, being at home. Couple, oh shit! That's <laughs> alright. It's, all right, it's, it's okay. A um, couple of vague memories of being at Silverstone when he was commentating. We were left in the hospitality bus, mm -hmm. more hospitality bus. Um, I guess a lot of what you know and what you've heard is what other people tell you and what you see. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, interviews of Dad, the, the books. There's one book that was written with him when he was alive, uh, James Hunt Against All Odds. For the record, of that book. And James on the biography by Gerald, Gerald Donaldson are the only two that are, I would call 100% factual. Like dead accurate. Any, 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 anything else might have some other accurate stories in it, but they could also be journalist bullshit. So be mm. careful. So I, I saw watching. you if say. If anyone wants to read about that, it's just those two books that I'd suggest are the only ones that are authorized by the family. That's good to know. I saw you say um, in another interview that in the Rush film they didn't put the British Grand Prix in or something like that. Something about the British Grand Prix? Or was there a certain race that didn't even get shown that should have been shown or something? Because oh, I can't remember actually. I need to watch. It's been such a long time since I watched a movie. But the British Grand Prix was one of the. It was one of the most. Probably still is the most historic race of Formula One. Yeah. Um, you know the the Ferraris took out Dad at Turn One. Well, one Regazzoni went into um, hit Nicky, who then hit Dad. Um, Dad didn't complete a full lap to into the pits. He took the shortcut into the pits because it had already been red flagged. So he took the shortcut into the pits. Um, that's why that's they they said. Um, oh no, James Hunt can't restart the race. His car's damaged. Alistair Caldwell deliberately stalled them enough 
for the top for them I've seen yeah. this. I've seen for, for, this on something else. I've watched. It was yeah. in the dock. It was in the, the dock. dock. Yeah. Yeah. And all the teams were getting really yeah, pissed off. Yeah, made enough about time it. for the mechanics to kind of bodge, bodge the car back together. I mean, the geometry was all off, and the car was, you know, handled. And then all the fans like were chanting, weren't they? Because when they announced they, that James Hunt can't start, the fans went ballistic, and they had like I don't know, it was a, it was a record crowd at Brown's Hatch yeah. um, on a hottest day. They had beer cans being thrown on the track, and they were scared. They were scared of a riot. That's and it was. A f- I've, I've spoken to a few people. They, they were some of the, some of the old boys. They were there deliberately deliberately started the chanting. We want Hunt. We want Hunt. <laughs> so deliberately started that, knowing that it would give Dad more chance. They could see what was happening in the pits, mm. and they were, the mechanics were rushing to fix the car. So they got it fixed, and they had to let Dad start. Otherwise, you know, the, they wouldn't have had a race at all. Mm. The fans would have just just trashed the circuit. Um, which is pretty awesome, I think. I mean, you never have never had that before, and you're not going to have it again. So no, 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 no. I, um, I, I <laughs> so, love it like that. Like that's anyway. And then Dad won the race. You know, he was with a car that was understeering terribly, according to him in his interview afterwards. Um, but he went up into Drew's, passed, got past Nicky, went, came out from the trees in front of Nicky. Crowd went wild. Dad won the race. Everyone was happy. And then a few weeks, a few months later, said the points. Oh yeah, no, this is a funny story. Um, I think it was after qualifying in. So they, they, there was a court case. Dad knew about that, but they thought they had it won fair and square. It was, you know, it was, it, was, it was just a formality. You know, they didn't have Ferrari. Didn't that have was leg, that about who got the points? Yeah, about the points. Yeah, about Dad being yeah, yeah. having his points taken away. But they um, for the car being too wide. That bit. No, 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 no. This is for the restart. Oh, okay. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. On the British Grand Prix. That was another the one. The car being They're, too wide bit. It's fucking yeah, hilarious. Yeah, they, got, they, they got the points back that. for that one. Yeah. But that was also later on in the season. So suddenly, um, Dad. He lost nine nine points, and Nicky gained three mm. from being promoted from second to first when they lost this court case. Now, Dad had just qualified, I think, on pole position in Canada or the American Grand Prix. I'm not sure. He got the news that Saturday evening after qualifying that he had lost nine points and Nicky gained three. So, what's twelve point difference? Mm. Significant. Um, and he by that point he thought shit the championship's over so he didn't give a shit mm. and they and the team stopped trying to control him um, in terms of what he was going to get up yeah. to that night and there was a uh, um, you know there was a live band and um, everyone went to bed you know midnight well most all the drivers and team members dad didn't no, um, he, he, everyone he, loves a live <laughs> band he, 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 t- he turned up to the track with the lead singer and a backup singer um, in still in the same clothes in the morning completely pissed as a fart <laughs> and, and won the race yeah, <laughs> so at that point he didn't he thought the championship was over mm. um, but he's still going to drive do his best and take it race by race yeah. and he didn't he, I think he won most of the races from there on apart from the last race and, uh, and, and snipped it by one point Got the championship like that, which, wow. as we said, he could have could have won the race quite easily. I think. Yeah. Had he cooled his tyres, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Andretti may have been on a completely different compound of tyres, and maybe his tyres could have never have done it. But you can see on the footage, he's driving down the straight on the dry line, not going through the puddles. So it's <laughs> it's pretty black and white yeah. to me. <laughs> what age did you um, start watching Formula One, or like getting like? Do you still watch it now? Yeah, I do. Um, it's not as Exciting as it used to be, of course. Yeah, but I still try and I try and watch watch. It's a very different sport now. Like I think, anyway, the way it's produced, everything about it, everything behind the scenes. Yeah, seems very clean cut now. We would, like I said to you before we did the pod, we had Max Cooper on from Gumball Gumball Rally. Yeah, and um, I mean, he tried to buy a Formula One team off Lord Hesketh, which your dad was racing with. Really? In the 90s, yeah. Do you what? not know that? No. So yeah. if you haven't watched it, you should watch it. It's amazing. Max is a really impressive guy. And he talks about he started off modelling and then he kind of done a few different things. He wanted to start a Formula One team in the 90s. 
um, because he was so infatuated by your father and kind of the rock and roll kind of lifestyle that he brought to Formula One. And he wanted to bring that back in the 90s. Right. He wanted like the kind of supermodels and the, and the rock star kind of vibe and the oh, drinking. Oh, shame he didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, well, but he tried, didn't he? Do you think like, you know, obviously everyone's not like that anymore, but I think your dad pioneered that that kind of image, I guess, in a way. Do I you think, think it needs more did, of that? Well, because I think even bef before dad arrived in Formula One, mm. they had never seen, you know, caviar and champagne in a track for, mm. I don't think. It was all really serious. And, yeah, I think, that, you know, the drivers certainly had fun after the race and everything, but the, the entourage that came with Hesketh, that Hesketh brought, you know, caviar and champagne, you know, a full-on party. I mean, the parties, I think dad said, it was quite simple. The party they would normally have at Easter Nest in the house, they just... Instead of having it at the house, they'd just move that to the racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'd be on the vodka by 10 o'clock in the morning um, <laughs> and move that to the racetrack. And, you know, Dad was probably, probably, probably feeling very jealous, but, you know, had to, he had to focus on the racing, and which he did. That's another misconception about the movie. They showed Dad, showed Dad in F3 having a, having a drink and a joint before the race. He would never have dreamed of that. He was deadly serious mm. and deadly professional. Mm -hmm. And say, oh, his fitness. No, he ran every day. He was a junior Wimbledon tennis player. He was a world-class wow. squash player. Mm. He was a true athlete. Mm. That's one thing I noticed from it. They, they spoke about he loved solo sports. Yes. Like, he was a very solo competitor. I, was, and I understand that. Like, I can imagine, I, I play football, but I like doing some things on my own because then I feel like if I mess up, I've got myself to blame. And I feel like I'm in control of how well I do it. Yeah, I'm so, a bit the same, yeah. So I do know why some people like solo sports. But then, I guess for you, you did polo, which is, is that that's more of a team sport, I guess. It is team, but it's still only one, on one, one in four. It's not like you've got, you know, 11, 9, 10 other players on the kind of football yeah, field or yeah, anything. Yeah. Um, but it is a team sport. Um, as is racing, you know, um, yeah, 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 car, car racing, uh, and particularly endurance racing. So I've really got to think about. But I think that. So when I came back to to to, to, to racing, that was more endurance stuff, and I think mentally that had a bit more. It sort of calmed me down a bit because I knew I had to bring the car back for my teammate to drive. Because I knew right. how how I would feel if he went out and crashed the car, and I didn't get to drive. Um, and then that's when it just. It just slowed me down a little bit. You know, I was always on the limit or slightly over it. Now I'm on the limit or just slightly under it to be on the safe side, to bring the car home. Because mm. if you want to finish first, first you have to finish. Yeah. Um, and that's why I didn't seem to understand at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good saying. Uh, and I, and I, I had no, absolutely no fear because I had some big crashes at the beginning. That mm. first crash um, when I, uh, at Sneston testing, that was 95 miles an hour straight into a wall. Wow. Didn't have a scratch on me. Didn't even feel it. Yeah. So that gave me the confidence that you know, I'm pretty pretty invincible in this thing, <laughs> <laughs> um, which didn't help my um, you know I should have had more fear of of crashing for you know reputation and you know I never really I guess it was maybe the mechanics didn't like me very much because they're constantly having to repair my car <laughs> in a rush for the next session for the next race but yeah and I and I, and I, I think I was just so ignorant and naive I didn't mean it intentionally. <clears throat> But now I'm, I'm fully aware if you crash mm. the car, mm. you know, even in the practice, chances are you're going to miss the next practice session. Yeah. Um, and it costs a lot of money. And it take, that takes money away from your testing budget. You know, and the more money you have in racing, the faster you go, period, end of. Yeah, so the more times you crash the car, the less money you have, the slower you're going to go. Mm. Um, so it's, you, I think the endurance racing has really helped me with, for, for that. I, and you, I can settle into a groove easier mm. you know and just get into a rhythm easier and although you are still driving flat out you're not 
apart from sometimes tire, you know, tire conserving. Um, but you know, Le Mans 24 hour, those guys are on, they're pretty much on qualifying laps every lap. They're flat out. That's ins- yeah, it's insane. Yeah. It's, it's not like it used to be when the cars were so, um, so delicate. You had to be so careful with them to get the car to the end of the race. Yeah. Now, yes, of course, you, still, you don't want to be nailing the curbs every time. And you still got to have a, an element of mechanical sympathy, but you're, st- you're still driving flat out. <laughs> have you had a chance to drive any of those old cars or like any of your dad's old cars at all? I've driven my dad's. Um, Have you? Never in anger, unfortunately. Only it's only ever been on, on a little demonstration <laughs> in never anger. Had... Up the Goodwood Hill, wasn't it? Yeah, I've done the hill climb a couple of times. I've done some in, in film, filming around Silverstone, you know, with a film car in front of me, so you know, snail's pace. But the only time I've really got the chance to get the tyres warm was on a demonstration race at the Goodwood. I think it was a members meeting, and there was about a dozen. Cosworth DFE 70s F1 cars and it was a demo race so a demo race means to me overtaking is involved um, well it's a demo race it's not a parade <laughs> um, anyway the guy in front of me was going really slow so I passed him passed the next guy passed the next guy and then this guy he was, he was on it and I noticed he looked like he was going flat through there through this, I can't remember the names of the corners, but it was this sort of long right-hander at Goodwood, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. I just kind of thought, and I just sort of kept my foot in, and I knew the tyres were warm, and I thought, oh, and, I, and I knew I had decent downforce, I knew where the bumps were, and then I, yeah, and then I got the confidence with the car, I could, you know, yeah. uh, and I called him up pretty quick and passed him across <laughs> the line in first, and, and everyone said, it was a demonstration race, <laughs> well, I haven't been invited back since, but I, said, well, I didn't break the car, Everything, everything's happy, and I won the fucking race, so what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been celebrating everything. Oh, That's great. Someone's got a show that day. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> and I saw on your Instagram you announced use it next weekend. You're racing. Yes, not this coming the following. Yeah. At, so what's that? So that is the German Prototype Cup in an LMP3 car. We did one race in the German Prototype Cup last year at Nurburgring, but our main focus last year was the Michelin Le Mans Cup. Mm-hmm. Now I'll give you a bit of background how all this sort of started. Um, since COVID. As I told you, when I COVID, moved up to Scotland, gave up on racing, but I still maintained a license and still called people just yeah. in the off chance. I still hadn't given up all hope. Um, and I got a drive in, uh, in Monza in 2021 in an LMP3. Um, qualified fourth. I mean, I missed the first practice session because the call came the night before. And uh, qualified fourth, less than two tenths off pole. That restored some confidence wow. in me. I thought, okay, even when, even when I'm rusty, I can be quick. And this you is still got a it. competitive field, yeah. And then, so I pushed really hard for sponsors, looking for sponsor hunting like crazy. And then I was introduced to Hans Reiter of Reiter Engineering. And the reason I didn't know about them before, because they've never been in prototypes before. So that's, because I called all the other teams saying, getting quotes from them, what's it going to cost me? What deal can you do me? And this, that, and the other. Mm. Um, and then I spoke to Reiter. Uh, so it was at Axel, my first manager from Germany years ago, introduced mm. me. Oh, cool. And he said, uh, uh, Hans Reiter, he's got an LMP3 car, and I think you should have a chat with him. So I spoke to him. And I told him about the sponsors that I was hoping to land, some big companies. It turns out they're all bullshit. Um, they all just talk. But we got to the first race, and well, we got to the en- to the entrance. You have to pay the entry fee by mid February. Um, I said to Hans, "Look, I'm. If you're confident you're you're going to do this with me, um, we can do a letter of agreement. I'm happy to take out a loan to pay for the entry, which is 20k." Um, he said, no, 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 if you sign something with me, we'll pay the entry fee, but as long as when you get these sponsors, you have to drive with us. Great. Anyway, we got to the first round. We still haven't landed any sponsors. He said, well, we're committed now, so <laughs> we'll do the first race. And um, 
And just before the first race, after the first practice, as a Paul Ricard, he offered me a five-year contract. Wow. Um, we'd been ch- we were chatting. I told him my, my, my dream, my, 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 my now new formulated plan was to try and win Le Mans by 2026, or on 2026, which is Dad's 50th mm-hmm. anniversary of his championship. Oh, wow. Because I thought, you know, for sponsors, they're going to need a long-term plan. Uh, actually, I can't claim this for myself. It was someone else's idea. Claim it, claim it yourself. But he said, you know, go for a long-term strategy and leading up to the to the, to the, uh, the 50th anniversary mm. of you know w- winning Le Mans or at least competing at Le Mans, having a good crack at it. Yes. You know, um, but I believe now you know, with writer engineering, we didn't we, we didn't do any preseason testing because we had two days booked at Nurburgring, <coughs> which got snowed off the day before, late snowfall. And then another day booked, which got suddenly all, half the team had COVID, so we couldn't test. So we arrived at Paul Ricard with no um, no setup, no nothing. We had a recommendation set up from the from the car manufacturer. I'm not going to mention any names, um, but I think they, <laughs> they got it horribly wrong. I don't think they know their cars very well, unless it was intentional, because it was a shopping trolley. Um, it, was, it was just completely undrivable. Mm. We've qualified sixth, finished 11th, no points. Second race, now we're done. We did a day's testing, and we got some... Um, uh, some data and we went to Imola qualified fourth crossed the line in fourth um, but we had a, we pitted like a minute too early or something like that so we got that put down to 16th that time added to our time so again still no points then we get to Le Mans um, and we're, now we're fast um, we, 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 we still actually no extra testing in between um, we're leading the first race by 15-20 seconds then the safety car stitched us up um, and you yeah, bunched up the pack and my teammate did all he could but our setup wasn't great and some of those drivers we had Tom Tom Dillman um, Lawrence who are some really world class gold drivers and, you know they Mads did what he could to hold them off but finished fifth right. second race same thing happened I had, we had like a 30 second lead um, and then they pulled out a safety car for no bloody reason at all um, they could have easily just done slow zones mm. um yeah, and but we finished second. We were on the podium that time. Wow! Um, and then Monza was the next race after that pole position. Um, but we had a, we had a, got a drive through penalty because just before the race, as they're on the grid, the wheel the steering wheel overheated. So we had to change it. The so steering on, wheel overheated. Yeah, and it completely spazzed out. Hmm. Just just gave up. So we had to change it. Um, and. Uh, because we touched the car within two minutes before the start of the race, oh, that gives yeah. you a penalty. Oh, so yeah. it's a technical yeah. bullshit penalty. Yeah. Um, we finished fifth, got some points. Uh, and then we went to Spa. Um, again, pole position again. That's, that was me qualifying in, on a damp track. Pole position. So I did all the qualifying as the, as, as, as the bronze driver did. So I was bronze last year, but I'm not anymore. They moved me up. So you silver <laughs> upgraded me to silver now. Great. And leading the race by like 30 seconds, again, this is a wet race first wet race in years or possibly the first wet race ever I think I've done um, and you know I was pretty pretty dominant um, and you know all the bronze drivers start normally um, but we had like a 30 second lead after the driver changed and then another yeah. safety car cheers guys <laughs> um, so the, <laughs> cool, all, the, all the pack car. were behind Mads my teammate and mm. he lost the lead with three corners to go uh, so he came second but good on the podium great. second podium yeah, yeah. And then the last race of the season, we won. Um, oh, wow. We qualified third. No, fourth. No, third. Got into second, and then there was a massive crash, um, and which stopped the race for about an hour. So they only had half the race left, but Mads hmm. um, actually drove like a hero. Um, he came out second place and then 
took the lead and um, and, and, drove and pulled away and I think he crossed the line with two or three seconds to spare. What's yeah. your, what's your favourite circuit, circuit to drive ever? Le Mans. Uh, I love Le Mans. It's you know the long, long straights for passing, slipstreaming and passing. You've got the fast, those fast corners. Mm -hmm. You've got the fantastic couple of chicanes. It's just, just corner after corner, just fantastic mm -hmm. with loads of over, overtaking opportunities. Between so now and 2026, what do you have to do to get to Le Mans in 26? So, um, keep the rust off this year. That's what I've said to the team. So we struggle for sponsors this year. Um, the team forked out quite a bit last year. Um, but we've struggled with sponsors, so I said to them, "Look, let's let's focus more on 2024 to 2026. Those three years of finding real sponsors, because now we're talking big money. Because we're mm -hmm. moving up to either the World Endurance Championship or the European Le Mans Series, which is double or triple the cost. Mm. Um, but if we can do some racing this year to keep the rust off me, keep me going, um, but all our, our sponsorship hunting efforts should be on the goal. Yeah, yeah." So luckily we've, we've, we've got a few small sponsors and we can do a few races this year, which is great. But you know, my, my, um, my focus is, is getting the sponsorship for the next three years. Um, we had three options, one of how to go about winning Le Mans. One is the hypercar, which is six million euros a season to run. Um, and we were offered a car by a manufacturer, they wanted us to have the car. But now what we've just seen, even if you've got the best car, like Toyota had through, throughout the season, they, then they say, no, fuck you, um, here's 50 kilos and less, less power, so Toyota were nowhere. So there's no point right. going into the hypercar, even if we had 100 million. Mm -hmm. It mm. doesn't make any difference, because you have the best car and then you get screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> GT's not the best option. Um, I can't remember the details why, but I had a long chat with hands team boss yesterday morning and he said no I think what we want what we need to do is LMP2 which is actually all the cars I really wanted to race in um, and we'll we'll go into the European Le Mans series but in order to get an invitation to Le Mans you have to be in the top three in the championship um, when Le Mans okay, comes yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to get an invitation to Le Mans so just the year before or the same no year? That, that season oh. I think oh really so maybe the previous I don't know how it works because there's more than there's multiple championships but they will take they will invite teams from or cars from, yeah. I think IMSA, um, maybe a Asian Le Mans series, maybe if the win, if you win any Asian Le Mans series, or the previous winner of European Le Mans series might get an invite, I'm not sure how it works, but what I do know, that year, um, if you're in the top three, you get an invite. Mm -hmm. um, so that's our plan, our strategy now is to European Le Mans series for the next, next year, um, and probably the next three years, wow. um, in an LMP2. Um, which costs quite a bit of money to run, but we need to find that. But I've got a couple of other tricks up my sleeve in order to, help to give more exposure to, to, to sponsors because the reality is um, the exposure you know, endurance racing provides is, is very limited for the money that is required to, yeah. to fund the car. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't really give... We're just putting a sticker on the car, doing corporate events, track days, mm. even all of that still doesn't equate to, they're not getting a great return on investment. Yeah. So how does one generate more exposure? Yes, if you've got a huge YouTube following, that'll help, but I, I don't have a YouTube channel at all. Um, it's a bit late to start one, really. Um, doing things like this is great, of course. You know, yes, yeah. and we will support as well, by the way. We do this with, you know, there's so many people that we could support on the grid, but when we have people on, like F2 drivers, there will be the people that we watch. So now, you know, yeah. we're going to be following your whole race career for the next... Cool, well, I hope so. Yeah, I, I, hope so. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, I need to boost my social media. So guys, anyone watching, please do follow my social media because yeah. that helps finding sponsors as well. <clears throat> 
Um, of course. And it's an exciting be... person to sponsor. So I'm surprised that you don't get more. I mean, there's a lot of interest. You know, my name opens doors. Yeah. Doesn't walk I mean. me through them, though. Mm. Unfortunately. True. <laughs> True. Well, True. I suppose it'd be all too easy then if it did. But, um, yeah. yeah, no, my name definitely opens doors. Um, but, the, you know, I think pre-2008 crash, pre-cigarette but sponsorship advertising ban, mm-hmm. it was easy. Compared to now, yeah. Now we've had the you know the crash. Everyone tightened their belts up then in, in two thousand and eight. Mm. Now we've had Brexit and COVID, and everyone's really careful what they're spending their money on, right, which yeah. is understandable. You know, yeah. you know, we are facing a probably a you know, global <coughs> yeah. um, economic you know, meltdown. I think I don't know. I'm not an economist, but a lot of people are talking about it. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. It says on the TV sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I don't really know either. <laughs> um, but sure it makes sense. You know, there's a war. There's a you know, post pandemic, which I also think was. A Bullshit pandemic, but anyway, that's different. Yeah, topic. yeah, we we could go there, but we won't. Yeah, that's not. Go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got the part of the pod which I usually get most excited about coming up, which is this leaderboard behind my head here, and we were taking a little look at it earlier, um, because you're going to be hopping on our sim and doing a lap around Austria. Yeah, a bit nervous about this, guys, because I'm not a great sim driver, <laughs> yeah. but. Um, <sighs> I heard you say you don't you can't you don't fill the car obviously when you're in a sim. You can't fill the car. I mean, when mm. you're in a sim, I mean, a really high-end sim, which I do use at Sim, sim Motorsport in, in Kent. Um, mm. um, you can those you can a bit then with the seat moving around. Yeah, but it's, still, not, it's still nowhere nowhere near the same. To judge the difference when you're entry corner speed of you know five k's, where you know, you're either five k's too slow and you need to be three k's faster, but you go in five k's too bit faster. It's very difficult to judge in the car slide, and you lost yeah. your lap time. Well, you're going to love this because we've got pedals that aren't even properly screwed on, and they move around. Oh, they move bit. around everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a shambles because we haven't set it up. <laughs> but you can have as many practice laps as you want, and then we'll record three laps, and whichever one of them will be the quickest time added to the board. Shit, okay. Why don't, well, why don't we grab the lap, and then we'll sit back down? Yeah, okay. Let's, let's do it. Right, we'll let's grab the lap. Cool. Freddy Hunt on our simulator. That's <laughs> the uh, <for> one. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Freddie Hunt, you've just done your lap. Right. Looking at the board, whereabouts roughly would you like to have come, do you reckon? I mean, obviously at the top, but re- realistically the top, speaking. Realistically speaking, against Oscar Piastri, I doubt I'm anywhere going to be within two seconds of him. So he's on a 105.9, call that a 106 flat. If I could do a 108 flat, I'd be satisfied with that. A 108? Yeah, flat. So that would put, put me second last. Yeah, that 108 put, flat. That would put you between Jake and Johnny Herbert, which isn't a bad place to be. Yeah, but two seconds off Oscar Piastri. You know, okay, so a 1079. So if I could beat Johnny, um, be two seconds off Piastri, who spends probably countless hours in, in, in these Formula One sims. And yeah, yeah I'd, I'd be satisfied to be two seconds off him in my first go. Well, you've beaten, uh, you've beaten Johnny. I've beaten Johnny, haven't you've I? You've beaten Johnny. Okay. You've also, you've beaten me. All right. And you've also beaten Mikey Brown. Brilliant. So, yeah. so Freddie Hunt, you've done the pit stop fastest lap in a 106.236. Fucking hell. Which shoves you just below Matt Gallagher. <laughs> that's a blinding that. lap <laughs> for someone for someone who doesn't do a lot of sim work or doesn't like typically like sims that's a blaster of a lap no, I, I, I do it out of necessity like yesterday I spent all, all day on Zandvoort <laughs> yeah. um, learning because we were going there soon I haven't driven Zandvoort before right, right. a few laps around there once in dad's car but yeah. um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, if I had a sim at home, I would do more because it's for, on a real sim, it's good physical exercise. Yeah. Another thing I really lack in comparison to my other my competitors is the muscles. So they right. since a kid they've been in cart building up all these driving muscles. I haven't got that. Yeah. There's only so much you can do in a gym, you know, I hold the ball out in front of me doing that and I do yeah, all yeah, sorts yeah, of yeah. and it's it, my neck never gets sore. It's always my sort of arms and shoulders, shoulders and, I get the and, shoulders. and, and, and yeah. back as well. Mm. Where these kids they've been building up these muscles since they're, you know, five, six, seven years old. Yeah. Um, I haven't got any of that. Takes its toll, yeah. And you know, there's only so much testing you can do because of the cost of it. But in a in a really top quality simulator, you know, after an hour, an hour in it, you're dripping sweat. Mm. So it's, and you're using the same muscles. After an hour doing a podcast, I'm dripping with fucking sweat. So I couldn't <laughs> imagine what it's like getting in a car. <laughs> six, two, three. Yeah, uh, six, two, three, six, yeah. Fab, can you stare at me, is it? Two, three, four. So that is just under three tenths. That's rippingly quick. <laughs> Just under three tenths from Oscar Piastri. I'm pretty impressed, impressed with that. So, um, you know, McLaren, when one of your guys gets a broken leg or whatever, you know who'd call. <laughs> now that would be sick yeah. to see Freddie on it in a McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> Before we let you go, mate, because I know you've got a busy day today, um, I wanted to just ask you, so, you know, you're racing at the moment. Yeah. You used to do polo. You live on a farm. What else would you like to do with your life? Is there anything else that you want to achieve before it's all over? Well, the ultimate goal, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Um, actually, I, I, I do have one potential up my sleeve, but my, my ultimate goal is to raise enough money to um, A, put into conservation, but B, buy a large piece of land, wrecked farmland, and rewild it um, to turn it back into you know, a national park. It wouldn't be a private park, but yeah. um, where I can, I can manage it. I mean, wildlife is my passion. You know, above all, racing. I, you know, I love racing. I love my job. Mm. Don't get, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. Um, but being out in, you know, in nature and wildlife, and what, seeing the destruction of the habitat going all around us. If I could have just one piece of ten thousand acres or something, mm. probably not in the UK because it's too expensive, but somewhere yeah. mm. um, that it, that that I can protect and defend vigorously. Mm. Um, that's that's my real dream. And you know, and, and do whatever I can for conservation. You know, here I have have the. Uh, if you can see that. We'll get the cam on it later. That's the, um, what's the logo? The David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation, who I support. Mm -hmm. um, David Shepherd, the late artist, he founded that in the 80s. And that is, 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 is it, they raise money to donate to certain projects. They work closely with projects in Africa and in Asia. Yeah. So it's, it's anti-poaching, it's wildlife crime. Um, it's basically keeping endangered species alive wow. um, before, they're, before they're wiped out. So that's that's one thing, you know. Um, if I had the excess money, you know, I suppose deforestation would actually probably have to take priority because I think that's more of a threat to the globe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we lose if we lose the, the rainforest, then then the all, all the mm -hmm. weather systems around the globe buggered. No one can grow anything at any predictable time. Everyone starts running out of food. Everyone starts fighting. Suddenly, you've got World War Three. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen if we run out of if we if we if we lose too much. Um, uh, of the rainforests and you know biodiversity is is key you know the bees if they collapse we've got nothing to pollinate our, pl our plants yeah um and we can't grow food so you know just by a lack of resources through our own gross negligence and our own you know, humans abuse to the to the world to the planet um is going to cause global uh you know world war three because of that and so that's what i want to try and prevent if i can yeah yeah. I find it quite that's amazing hearing you speak about all this stuff so passionately whilst at the same time you're going to try and compete in Le Mans at 2026. Like, I know, a it's a bit on. controversial, the um, 
you know, driving cars and being a conservationist. But I figured my, my reasoning is my, if I can use a short space of time, a few years, driving cars to raise my profile enough, mm-hmm. which I can then use to generate cash. Use for the good. Yeah. That's, that, that's my strategy. Yeah. Um, so something that I have just launched um, is a brand, is a sustainable luxury fashion brand. Um, although I don't look like I'm very fashionable, <laughs> I normally just dress pretty casually. But I do, I do like fashion and sustainable fashion. I mm. thought, and a friend of mine, um, we came up with the idea a few years ago, and we thought, okay, let's let's give it a try. So we've just launched as well as a soft launch, um, LK Hunt. It's called. Wow. Um, you can have a look at the website elkayhunt.com, um, and it's uh, yeah. Materials all handmade, handcrafted, hand stitched um, by you know third, fourth generation embroiders, um, all sustainably um, produced uh, source materials such as you know silk. When we use silk, um, which we don't use much of it actually, um, you know, normally the silkworm gets killed um, when they produce the silk. The worms then can die off. Not with our our factories take it from from where the silkworms actually get allowed to turn into butterflies. So oh, wow. That's think, things like that. You know, yeah, yeah. the cotton and all the, the staining of our fabrics. Uh, we don't buy uh, coloured fabrics because we don't know mm-hmm. where, where they've been stained, where they've been coloured and where the water, where the, the toxic waste from that has gone. Mm. So we do all that in-house. We buy the, buy, buy the plain white cotton and we, we do all the colouring wow. ourselves so we can control where the, where, where <coughs> the waste goes. All this like really speaks to me. Being from the country and you know you talking about the conservation and farming and stuff like that, it means a lot to us because that's kind of where our roots are as well. Yeah. Um, and I love fashion too, and <laughs> being sustainable. So yeah, we'll have to cool. sort, sort, sort you out some shirts then. Oh, that'd be, oh, that'd that'd be, be amazing. Great, man. Um, Look, as long as you wear them on the podcast. Well, we should prob- <laughs> we should probably sort you out with something then. Oh, what you got? Uh, give me a sec. Oh, where's he going? Completely forgot about this. Let's do it. Well, whilst he's doing that, no, I, I just wanted to say like. I think you're a pretty remarkable person. Like oh, the fact you. <laughs> that your whole story, everything, you know, just everything that's around you and the fact that you're still going into racing and you have all these beliefs and you live in Scotland and you produce your own food. And I think there's so much to you. And you said you were working on a documentary or something at the moment behind the scenes. Can you speak about that? I can a little bit. So the reason for that is that there is that the, the racing I do doesn't produce enough exposure for sponsors to get a decent return. So I thought, well, how do I how do I increase the uh, the exposure? Let's make a documentary out of it. Um, it's still in the very early stages, um, but but yeah, I've got to uh, I've got to get a script together and a pitch deck and go to produce production companies, um, which it, it, the ball is rolling, but it's still very early days, and you know, just. Producing a document documentary in itself, finding the funding for that is might yeah, be equal, equally as hard as finding funding for racing. I don't yeah, know, but is. I've got to try. Yeah, yeah. Because no one, no other buggers come up with any good ideas, and I haven't got any billionaire friends. Well, we're not billionaires, but we've got a couple of cameras and some microphones. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're gonna have help. If you need some help, yeah, we'll come and film everything. Um, mate, we had a few pit stop hoodies made up. Started this year. We're not selling them yet, but. They all came in different colours, and I just found this orange one in my in my wardrobe. It's not been worn, um, so yeah. Here you go, your very own pit stop. Thank you. McLaren yeah. colours. McLaren orange, McLaren yeah. Colours, cool. Well, when, I, when I go to the Grand Prix, it should be too hot the Grand Prix, but I'm gonna wear this. Yeah. I'll take it with me for the cool evening. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> it should fit, yeah. Thanks very much. No worries. Enjoy it. Um, well, guys, hope you enjoyed at home listening to Freddie's story. It's been amazing. You yeah, having Freddie, you thank in you your, so much for coming on. It's been incredible. 
the sim, the, the lab was ripping. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, quite, I'm quite pleased and surprised by that. To be honest, I mean, it was quite a tidy lap. Yeah, the other two were a mess, but yeah, yeah, it was a tidy lap. Seemed to hook it up. Well, <laughs> mate, have a great rest of your day, and thanks for joining us on pit stop. Yeah, yeah my really pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you very you much. Thank you, bro. Cheers, Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thank you very much.